Today we will be celebrating the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll see why we're here, because today it's Monday, but today is also a Sabbath day. So we'll be seeing, we'll be looking at that in just a moment, why we are celebrating this particular day. Psalm 40, verse 7, is where we always start on festival days, and it says, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Or in the King James, it says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So what that means is from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there's one clear, consistent message. And it teaches all about Messiah. And because today is a festival day, it's the eighth day of tabernacles, why do we even spend time learning about the feasts and the festivals? We'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. If you ever have anybody tell you, we can't know when the Lord is coming because no man knows the day or the hour, take them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, But concerning the times and the seasons, the times and the seasons refer to the feasts and the festivals of the Lord. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why is there no need? Because they're t studying them and they're learning about them and keeping them year in and year out. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, if you put a period right there and read no more, then it would sound like we, know, we don't need to know anything else because the day of the Lord comes as a thief, but keep reading what it says. Verse 3 says, For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So you notice three times the word they or them is used. Not talking about yourself, but talking about them. But verse 4 says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So what makes the difference between you and them? Darkness. What are, what are the brethren keeping? The feasts and the festivals. They know the times and the seasons because they know when the Lord is coming for the first and the second coming. So we are not in darkness so because we are keeping the feasts and we are keeping the festivals. Now, this is the season of tabernacles. And today is the eighth day of tabernacles. And let's, let's read in Leviticus 23 why we are studying about it today. So Leviticus 23. Leviticus chapter 23. The key verse is 36, but I want to start in verse 33. Actually, let's start back at verse 1. We won't read all the way through 33, but we'll skip forward. Leviticus 23.1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Why is that phrase so important? Because if it comes out of the mouth of God, what is it called? It's called Scripture. So what we're reading right now is called Scripture. Keep your finger here for just a moment. Turn to John chapter 10.
Look at John 10, 35. It says something really important about Scripture in John chapter 10, verse 35. Do you see the words that are in parentheses in John chapter 10, verse 35? It says, and the Scripture cannot be what? Says the Scripture cannot be broken. So if it is Scripture... What can we be guaranteed of? It can never be what? It can never be broken. It can never be annulled. It can never be done away with. So when we go back to Leviticus 23, and we see a phrase that says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, We know that what we're about to hear is Scripture, and Scripture cannot be what? Scripture cannot be broken. Verse 2 says, Speak to the children of Israel. Does that sound like a suggestion? It's not. It's a command. Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. The word feast is moedim. These are my appointed times. These are my appointed feasts. The times when I am going to intervene personally with mankind through, the, through Messiah Yeshua. So... When it says, these shall be holy convocation, the word convocation is mikra, which means a rehearsal. So every time you see in the scriptures about the feast being a holy convocation, a convocation means it's rehearsing something. There's something that it's rehearsing. So let's go over now to Leviticus 23. So skip forward to verse 33. Verse 33 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again, here we are hearing Scripture. He spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. That was last Monday. You shall do no customary work on it, which means it's a Sabbath. Verse 36 says, For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, I want you to make note of that phrase right there. We're going to be coming back to that later. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation. So that means today rehearses something. Today is the eighth day of a seven-day festival. But today rehearses something. Because if it is a holy convocation, it's a holy mikra, which means it rehearses something. Of something of great value, of great importance. So on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. So today is a high Sabbath, that's why we're not working today. And it is a sacred assembly. That word sacred assembly is shemini etzeret, which means a concluding assembly. This is the last day of the um, Feast of Tabernacles, so there is a concluding assembly, a sacred assembly. So make note of that phrase on the eighth day. We're going to be coming back and looking at that in just a little bit. So the eighth day of Tabernacles rehearses something. What does it rehearse? You'll find out. All right. Today our focus is going to be 
on when was the Lord born. We're going to be looking at the, the scriptures in Luke, and we're going to be looking at how we can know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was not born on December 25th. When we were in Israel about six years ago, we took a part of our tour, we went to um, Bethlehem. And when we went to Bethlehem, our tour guide that was there told us, and this is um, this was in Bethlehem, he said, there is absolutely no way that Jesus could have been born on December 25th. Absolutely no way. He said, it's too cold. He said, just plain and simple, it's too cold. So when we, when we heard that for the first time, it was kind of like, wow. I mean, it was just kind of like getting hit upside the head, you know, with a cold fish. It was, you know, it just really just opened our eyes to, you know, what else you know, about the scripture that we've been told is not true. But when you hear a tour guide in Israel say, you can't do it, they live there, they know in, on December 25th, there's no way you can take a sheep out into the field by night. It's too cold. So what we're going to look at now, we're going to start in the book of Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to look at when was the Lord born? So go to the book of Luke, and let's start in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. All right, so I want to start by talking about some of these words that a lot of people just kind of gloss over, we just kind of read over, but it's not information that's just put in there for no reason. It says, in the days of Herod, who was Herod? Herod was Herod the Great. Herod was an Idumean, which Idumeans were descendants of Esau, and there were forced converts to Judaism. So Herod began reigning after Rome took control of the Hasmonean Empire around the year 37 BC. The Hasmonean Empire, you've heard of the, um, the Maccabeans, correct? Okay, that was that related empire. So after Rome took control of the Hasmonean Empire in the year 37 BC, that's when Herod was put in um, put in control. And he died around the year 4 BC. So this gives us a time frame of when it took place because it wasn't long after the events of, of um, John the Baptist being announced that Herod actually died. So it would have been somewhere around the time of 4 BC. It says, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. All right, how many of you have read that phrase, the division of Abijah, before and said, what in the world does that mean? Okay, that's not superfluous information. 
That's important information. Of the division of Abijah, we have to go back to 1 Chronicles 24. So keep a finger here. Go back to 1 Chronicles chap, um, chapter 24. 1 Chronicles 24. During the time of David, David set up divisions among the priestly line because there were so many priests, they all couldn't serve in the temple at the same time. So David set it up to where there were divisions that worked for a week at a time at certain points of the year. So if we look at 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 24, starting in verse 7, here's how the divisions were set up, and we're going to read it down to verse 9. It says, Now the first lot fell to Jehoiarib, that's number one, the second to Judea, that's two, Jediah. Verse 8 says, The third to Harim, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth to Malchijah, the sixth to Majamin, the seventh to Hakoz, the eighth to Abijah. So every division or every lot served for one week. So the, ro the rotation for the priests began on the first Sabbath of the first month. And we're not talking about Tishri, we're talking about Nisan. So that would have been in the spring. So the rotation of priests started on the first Sabbath of the first month. So that would have been around March. Abijah was of the 8th division, which would have likely, he would have likely, or his division would have likely worked on the 10th week because of Passover and Pentecost. On the, high, on the festival days or the festival weeks, all of the priests would have worked or served in the temple. So even though he was of the 8th division, it would have likely been the 10th week from that first week. Because all priests have to serve during Passover and Shavuot or Pentecost. So this puts us sometime around the month of June. So when the division of Abijah would have served, it would have been in what we would call now the month of June. So why is that important? Well, let's go back and let's find out. All right, back to Luke chapter 1. So a certain priest named Zechariah, or Zechariah, Zehoriah in Hebrew, that, the phrase Zehoriah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. So the priest Zechariah was of the division of Abijah, so he would have served in the temple around the month of June. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, the priestly line, and her name was Elizabeth. In Hebrew, the name Elizabeth is Elisheva. And Elisheva means the oath of God. So if we look at Zechariah, Zechariah, and Elisheva, the two names together, the Lord remembers the oath of God. So when God makes an oath, does he fail to keep it? He always keeps a promise. So all throughout the scripture, he's promising Messiah. Wow. Is he going to deliver on that promise? Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep a finger here. Skip forward just a moment to Luke chapter, stay in Luke chapter 1, but skip forward to verse 72. This is a prophecy of Zechariah. 
So when Zechariah was able to speak, because we're going to find out why he was not able to speak here in just a moment. Look at verse 72 and 73. It says, To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So when you take those two names, the Lord remembers the oath of God. How prophetic are those two names? So when it says the oath he swore to our father Abraham, is he going to break that oath? Absolutely not. Because remember what did the Lord promise through Abraham would come who? The Messiah. So he's about to deliver on that promise. All right, let's go back to Luke 1, starting in verse 5. All right, verse 6, talking about Zechariah and Elisheba. It says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Why is that bit of information important? Look at verse 7. But they had no, chi they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. That is a very nice way of saying what? They're old. They're old. And it says Elizabeth was barren. Now, why is that bit of information important? Because if you were considered childless in those days, what were you considered? You were considered cursed of God. But what do we see about Elizabeth and what do we see about Zechariah? It says they walked in the commandments of God and were blameless. Tamim. That means that they were walking uprightly before God. Who else is considered in the scripture walking blameless before God? Noah. So think about all the people throughout the scripture that are considered tamim and blameless before God. But it says they didn't have child. Was there possibly a reason why Elizabeth didn't have a child at this point? Because of the was from him. Oh, I was going to say, instead of uh, the association to Noah, which is, is fine, but um, Abraham and Sarah Absolutely. were old and were blessed with no kids. Um, <laughs> depends on your point of view. Right. Um, but, you know, so it, I won't repeat I, that on the tape. But. Okay. The, the tie-in is also with those two because that, that's to whom the promise was made and then to who it was delivered on right. the rent. So when the promise is made to somebody who's past childbearing years, who can we give praise and honor to for that miracle? It can only be to the Lord. It can only be to the Lord. So God is about to perform a miracle. Verse 8. It says, so it was while, that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, so if you think back to what I just said, what time of year would this be? Around June. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. How often does a person get to burn incense before the Lord? Possibly one time if he's blessed in his lifetime. So this is, do you think this is coincidence? Absolutely not. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. When they were praying, were they just all praying on their own accord? No, the prayers that they were praying were scripted prayers. 
okay? Or we, call, we might call them a liturgical prayer, but they were scripted prayers. They would have been praying what's known as the Amidah. The Amidah, literally Amidah means standing. So these are prayers you pray while standing. And the basic construct of the Amidah is in three sections. Praise, petition, and thanks. So when you pray to the Lord, and we're going to look at some examples of that in just a moment, but when you pray to the Lord, what does the Lord expect you to give Him first? Praise. praise. So that's the first basic construct of the Amidah praise. And then your second is you give petition, Lord, here's what I need. And then after you pray for your needs, you give Him thanks. So those are the three basic constructs or th basic sections of the Amidah prayer. Um, from the website Safaria, here's a quote about the Amidah. It says, in the 5th century BCE, so about the time when the temple was being rebuilt from um, when it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So in the 5th century BCE, the 120 men of the Great Assembly composed the basic text of the Amidah. The exact form and order of the blessings were codified after the destruction of the second temple in the first century CE. So the basic construct of the Amidah was composed by the Great Assembly back in the 5th century BCE. Now here's another interesting bit of information from HebrewsForChristians.com. It says, quote, some scholars surmise that the Lord's Prayer of Jesus is a concise restatement of the Amidah. So let's look at Matthew chapter 7, or actually chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. So keep a finger in Luke. And turn over to Matthew chapter 6. So according to some scholars, the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, whatever you prefer to call it, is a concise restatement of the Amidah. So let's look at verse 5. It says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think, when they, they think that they will be heard for their many words." That word heathen in verse 7, according to the Thayer's Greek lexicon, means something that's alien to the worship of the true God. So something that is heathen is not of God. So when the Lord said, don't use vain repetitions, what is he saying? He said, the heathen do this. So this is not how you, can pr this is not how you should pray to me. Because they think that their prayer is going to be heard. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Does that mean we don't pray? He knows what we need. I'm not going to pray it. No. 
Verse 9, in this manner, therefore pray. So here is what some scholars believe is the basic construct of the Amidah prayer. Remember, praise, petition, thanks. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's your praise. Your kingdom come. There's a petition. Pray in the kingdom. Well, that just goes to show that the Messiah is, the, I mean, of the Father because it's His kingdom that we're... Exactly. That's the, that's the kingdom we're praying in, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a petition. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's a petition. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So it ends on a note of thanks. So you hear, do you hear within that prayer, praise, petition, thanks. Your kingdom come. What is that a cry for? That's the Lord to come. That's the Lord to come and bring in the kingdom. So it's a call for Messiah to come and bring in the kingdom. So what was the message of John the Baptist when he came on the scene? Repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean it's at hand? Here it is. It's being offered to you. When Yeshua started his ministry, what was his main call? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Alright? So, if Zechariah was in the temple praying these prayers and making petition for Messiah to come. What scripture can we think of that, that talks about what has to happen before Messiah comes? Yeah, Elijah has to come. Malachi 4. So go to Malachi chapter 4. So before Messiah can come, Elijah has to come. Does that mean Elijah's literally going to return, or is it somebody in the spirit and power of Elijah? All right, go to Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6. Now keep this in mind too. These are the last three verses of what we call the Old Testament. If, if I flip the page, the next page I see says New Testament. Okay? How does verse 4 begin? Remember the law of Moses, my servant. What a powerful way to end the Old Testament. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with his statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will return, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So this is a prayer for the for the Messiah to come, and also for the forerunner of Messiah to come. Because what's the purpose of him sending someone in the spirit of power of Elijah? So he can turn the hearts of the fathers to the, children, 
to, so he can turn the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So in other words, Elijah, someone has to come and fill the role of Elijah to get people ready. To get people ready for the Messiah. So is it possible that Zechariah was praying Malachi 4 at this time as a prayer for Messiah to come? So if he's praying the Amidah, he's praying, making a petition for Messiah to come. Because we heard in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, what was one of the first things mentioned? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. All right, go back to Luke chapter 1, back to verse 10. It says, And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Verse 11 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, talking about Zechariah, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, does that mean that Zechariah was in there praying for a child? Well, we'll find out in just a minute that that's not true. Verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. What are you hearing right here? Joy, gladness, rejoice. What is that pointing to? Tabernacles. Establishment of the kingdom. Do you think John, or do you think Zechariah was praying for your kingdom to come? Which feast teaches about the establishment of the messianic kingdom? Tabernacles. So you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So it says that he will drink neither wine nor strong drink. What kind of vow is that? That's a Nazarite vow. What else does that mean he'll never do? He'll never cut his hair. What else will he never do? Touch a, touch a dead body, right. All you got to do is think back to Samson. What are the things he did that he wasn't supposed to do? <laughs> All right, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. What was the purpose of the forerunner of Messiah? To turn the hearts of the fathers? Right. So it says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Because what is his message? Is his message, y'all are doing just fine. Stay in your sins. God doesn't care. His message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's being presented to you. Here it is. Verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What if, what if John did not fill that role and did not get the people's hearts ready? They couldn't, that, there's no way they could have accepted the Lord. 
because it says, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So in other words, John had a purpose and we read about it in Malachi chapter 4. So when Zechariah was in there praying and making those petitions, praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, bring in the kingdom. The angel came and said, okay, you're going you're gonna, to um, have the forerunner of the Messiah. Now look at verse 18. I put a bracket around this and I wrote, this is how we know Zechariah was not praying for a child. Verse 18 says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Now, if Ze- what do we know about Zechariah? Was Zechariah a godless man? No faith? No, we can look back at verse 6 and see he was righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinances of God, blameless. That man had faith. If he was praying for a child... Would he say to the angel, there ain't no way I can have a child. I'm too old. My wife's too old. If he was praying, Lord, give me a child. I need a child. We need a child. We don't, we're, too, we're old. And then here comes an angel and says, you're going to have a child. No way. Does that sound like it matches the faith that Zechariah would have had? Do you think Zechariah was praying for a child or was he praying for Messiah to come? So the angel came and said, Messiah is going to come and your wife is going to, to bear the forerunner. For how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Verse 19. Verse 19. It says, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, Gavriel, mighty one of God, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. So in other words, he's saying, you're looking a gift horse in the mouth, son. I came to give you these great things and now you're... (laughs) But behold, verse 20, but behold... You will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. So in other words, Zechariah is going to be what until John the Baptist is born? He's going to be silent. He's going to be mute. Do you think that will build some faith? Absolutely. Because he'll be mute until all these things happen. Verse 21, And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. They're finished praying. Because if these prayers are scripted, they're liturgical, they're sitting there waiting. What's Zechariah doing? He must, like something must be going on. So they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. He should have been out by this point. Verse 22, but when he came out, he could not speak to them and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So when it says he beckoned to them, that means he's talking with his hands and they don't know what's happening, but they know he probably saw something. 
So they perceived correctly. Verse 23, So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So when it says Elizabeth conceived, so keep in mind, when was the when would Zechariah's time in the temple have been? Around June. So if she conceived when, they, when he went back home, count forward from June. June, July, August, September, October, November. That's five months. So she would have hit herself five months, which puts us around the end of November in our modern calendar, in November. So... We fast-forwarded five months. We're around the time of November. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So if we add another month, that would be what we call what? December. So in the sixth month, that is of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So Joseph was of the kingly line. If the line of the kings would have continued, who would have been the king of Israel at that time? Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Again, do you see an emphasis on tabernacles? Rejoice. You're about to give birth to the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who brings in the kingdom. So we see that connection there to tabernacles. <clears throat> I want to make note of this also. I, didn't, I forgot to make note. So in the sixth month, that puts us near December. So what happens near this time of year during December? Hanukkah. 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 Festival of lights. So who is about to come into the world? The light of the world. So the light of the world was conceived around this time of year. Around the time of Hanukkah. Alright, verse 29. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Remember we looked at the word favor the other day and that word favor means grace. You have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name, here it says Jesus, but in Hebrew, it's the word Yeshua. And what does Yeshua mean? Salvation. Keep a finger here. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 21. Matthew 1, 21. It says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for, here's why, 
He will save His people from their sins. How many of you have read that as Jesus and read all of that and you're like, what in the world does that mean? But when you read it as Yeshua and understand that the word Yeshua means salvation, doesn't it help that word or that line make so much more sense? For He will save His people from their sins. So literally, you will name your son salvation because He will save people from their sins. All right, go back to Luke chapter 1. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for a little while. Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So in other words, this is the Messiah. Verse 34, when Mary sa- then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, if we remember back to verse 27, it says she's a virgin betrothed to a man. Betrothed is the first stage of marriage. So have they come together as husband and wife? Not at this point, no. So Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month. That's how we know in verse 26 that six month refers to the sixth month of her, um, of her pregnancy. This is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. And then verse 37, he just ends it. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Even letting a woman who's past the childbearing age bear a son? Absolutely. Nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38, Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary is pretty much saying, Let it be. Amen. I believe it. God said it. There you go. That's faith. Absolutely. That is faith. Something I failed to read just a moment ago. In the Amidah prayer, I want you to listen to prayer number 15 of the Amidah. And every time you hear the word salvation, I want you to hold up a finger. Okay? Alright, here we go. Prayer 15 of the Amidah. It says, May the seed of David, thy servant, flourish speedily, and may you exalt your salvation. For in your salvation do we hope all the day. Blessed are you, Lord, who brings forth the horn of our salvation. How many times did you hear salvation mentioned? Three times. And if you look at that, each time the word salvation is mentioned, you see the word Yeshua every time in that prayer. So in the 15th prayer of the Amidah, it says, Lord, Send your salvation, send your 
your Yeshua, your Messiah. So here he is, being the news being delivered to Mary. All right, skip forward to verse 56. So six, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy puts us around December, around the time of Hanukkah. So Mary conceived the child around the time of Hanukkah. Verse 56 says, And Mary remained with her, talking about Elizabeth, for about three months and returned to her house. Alright, so count forward three months from December. January, February, March. So this puts us toward the end of March and what festival of the Lord happens around the end of March, early April? Passover. So that means after... Not, so Elizabeth's been pregnant six months, count forward three months, that's how many months? That's nine months. Baby comes around nine, around nine months, right? Okay. So that means that John the Baptist would have been born around the time of Passover. So this helps us more with some timing. Verse 57, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. That means she carried the baby the full time. And she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So John the Baptist would have been born around the time of Passover, around late March. All right. Skip forward to Luke chapter 2. Now let's read about the birth of Messiah. Luke chapter 2 verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So this would have happened, this census ran from about 8 B.C. to about 6 A.D. So a pretty significant amount of time. Now why would it take 8 B.C. to 6 A.D.? So about 14 years. So why would it take so long to do a census? Couldn't they just go online and register and... <laughs> it would have taken a long time to register the whole known world at, those at that time, especially when people are having to travel from other towns. Verse 3 says, So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Verse, three, or verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was, of the, <clears throat> he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, talking about in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So in other words, she's ready to have the baby. Okay, so if she conceived in December, around the time of Hanukkah, she spent three months with Elizabeth. So she's three months pregnant at that time. That puts us around the end of March. So April, May, June, July, August, September. 
So that puts us around the time of tabernacles. So when she conceives, or not when she conceives, when she's ready to deliver and give birth, we're around the time of tabernacles. And I believe that he was born on the first day of tabernacles. And I'm going to show you why I believe so in just a little bit. So it was, verse 6, so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and lied him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Why not? Why was there no room in the inn? Is it just because Bethlehem was such a hustle-bustle place and everybody was there on vacation? No. What do you know about the tabernacles? Tabernacle is, tabernacles is one of the Shlosh Regalim, one of the pilgrim festivals. So if people were there registering for the census and people were there for the feast, the inn would have been full. All right, I want to read you some... <clears throat> Excuse me, I want to read you some commentary about verse 7. All right, from a website called messianicspokane.com, spokane.com, concerning the coming of Messiah. Quote, so she, she would not have given birth in a stable, let's just say that. She would have given birth in a sukkah, especially if it's the time of tabernacles. So concerning the sukkahs, it says these sukkahs were constructed with some basic supplies and enough food for eight days. One of the customs was to include a stall or crib for storage purposes in the tabernacle. The King James Bible calls this food or storage crib a manger. It is also interesting to contemplate that Yeshua was placed in a manger or a food storage crib, symbolically pointing him to him as the bread of life. So all these pictures you see of Jesus being born in a, in a barn, well, and then they put him in the, the animal food trough, what would that mean the Son of God would have been born into? There's animal waste and all of this stuff, uncleanness. So do you think that God would have had the Son of God born forth in uncleanness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So make note also of the swaddling cloths in verse 7. We'll, we'll come back and visit that one in just a moment. So the manger, that's the food box in the sukkah. That would have held the food during that time. Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Alright? So these shepherds that were watching over the fields by night, these would have been Levitical priests watching flocks for temple sacrifice near the area of Migdal Ader. Migdal Ader. We're going to read about Migdal Ader in just, an, in just a moment. So, in other words, the sheep that were being born there were born to be sacrificed. The Lamb of God was born there at Migdal Ader, and what was He born to be? To sacrifice for us. 
No pictures there. Now concerning sheep, this is according to a guy named um, Dr. Frank Thacker. Quote, according to the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is a um, record of Jewish history. It says, according to the Mishnah, these lambs, talking about the sheep, were immediately wrapped in swaddling cloths after their births to protect them from injury since baby lambs tended to thrash about and harm themselves in their first couple of hours of their lives. So those swaddling cloths, does that mean that Messiah was just thrashing around when he was born? No, that's not what he was talking about. But it was just symbolic. These swaddling cloths were wrapped around these lambs to protect them from injury. So our Messiah was wrapped in swaddling cloths because he was the Lamb of God. And why Migdal Eder? Why is that so important? All right, turn to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 comes right before Micah chapter 5, and everybody say, duh. <laughs> All right? But Micah chapter 5 is really important to the story. <clears throat> And Mary points out the French translation of manger means to eat. So thank you for that, Mary. All right, Micah chapter 4, verse 8. Actually, let's start back at verse 6 just to kind of give us a running context. Verse 6 says, In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. So this is talking about the coming of Messiah, the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, in Hebrew that's Migdal Eder. Tower of the flock, Migdal Eder. And you, Migdal Eder, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, or Zion, what was Bethlehem considered in those days? A daughter of Zion. What is a daughter of Zion? That's an unwalled city surrounding the larger cities. So you have Bethany, Bethlehem, Bethphage, all these smaller cities that surround the larger city. So if there was a, an attacking army or an invading army, would you stay in the unwalled village or would you take cover in the walled village? Well, if you have common sense, you run to the walled village, right? So Bethlehem was considered one of the daughters of Zion or one of the daughters of Zion. And to you, O tower of the flock, or Migdal Eder, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, talking about Bethlehem, to you it shall come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Promise of Messiah. And if it's not clear enough, skip forward to chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. What's that mean about Messiah? He's always been. He's always been. So Migdal Eder, mentioned here in Micah chapter 4, 
talking about where we would see Messiah coming to. Why is Migdal Eder important? Well, here's another quote from the Mishnah, a set of Jewish writings. It says, Cattle, or animals, found all the way from Jerusalem to Migdal Eder. That would be about five miles as the crow flies. And in the same vicinity in all directions, so talking about a five-mile radius around Jerusalem, are considered, if male, whole offerings, and if female, as peace offerings. So this is from the Mishnah, talking about animals found from Jerusalem to Migdal Eder. So where was Messiah born? In Bethlehem near Migdal Eder. So those acceptable sacrifices were only found to that point. Because what happens if you try to bring an animal, let's say 75 miles from, from Nazareth, what kind of animal must be sacrificed or brought before the Lord? Are you going to bring the blemished ones? Are you going to bring the ones that are maimed? Hey, on my way here it fell off the side of a cliff and kind of got roughed up a little bit. What did the Lord say to the priest back in Malachi? He said, offer it to your governor and see if he'd like it. You know, the, uh, the red heifers that just came in from Texas, those are not sacrifices. They're slaughters. They're slaughters, so yeah. It doesn't matter that they came from. Right. What kind of condition must... Any, anything that you do for the Lord has to be what? Tamim. Has to be blameless. What if there's any kind of defect in that red heifer? It disqualifies it. Absolutely. <clears throat> All right, go back to Luke chapter 2. So since the Lord is born around the, what I believe on the first day of tabernacles, are we going to see an emphasis on sadness and weeping and gnashing of teeth? And, or are we going to see an emphasis on joy, great joy? Well, let's see. Verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you glad, good tidings of great, what? Joy, which will be to all people. So it's not just for you, it's for all people. Verse 11 says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David, talking about Bethlehem, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. Well, he didn't cut any corners, did he? He's just, he here he is. He, this is who he is. He is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. Here's how you know I'm not making this up. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, lying in a food box in a sukkah. Do you think that might have sounded a little strange? But here, here's the sign. Here's how you're going to find it. And then verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest. Okay, verse 13, I'm sorry. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward man. Again, what are we seeing the emphasis on? Great joy. Joy. Peace, goodwill toward man, pointing us to tabernacles. Verse 15. 
So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So did they dilly-dally? It says they came with haste to see if this thing was true. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. So in other words, when they saw this, did they keep it to themselves? They made it known far and wide. And how many of you know news travels fast? Even in those days with no phone, no, no television, nothing, news is going to travel fast. Now, by the time, and we're going to read this in just a moment, by the time that the wise men came to Herod, had Herod heard about the birth? No. Which tells us this is not two years later. Because do you think it's going to take two years for news from tra to travel from Bethlehem all the way up to Jerusalem? News travels fast. So it says they made known, widely known, the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who had heard it marveled at those sayings which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen and it was as it was told them. Verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Yeshua, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So it says after eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child. All right, go back to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus 12, verse 3. We're going to read this verse and then I'm going to read you something. We're going to reread the verse again. Verse 12 says, And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So when did circumcisions happen? On the eighth day. Alright. So if Messiah was born on the first day of tabernacles, when would he have been circumcised? On the eighth day. Now, I want, you, I want to read this commentary from a website called First Fruits of Zion. It says, The last day of, this is the last day, the last day of the Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is an additional festival day the Torah calls the eighth day. Do you remember earlier when I said, Make note in Leviticus 23 of the day called the eighth day? So it says, the last day of Sukkot is an additional festival day that the Torah calls the eighth day. That's Leviticus chapter 23, verse 36. If Yeshua was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they must have circumcised him on the day called the eighth day, thereby literally fulfilling the scripture which says, let's read it again, and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. 
So this is a, a fulfillment, so thereby literally fulfilling the scripture that says on the eighth day his foreskin would be circumcised. So talking about who? Messiah. So when we talk about the eighth day, and we're going to look at the eighth day also has another meaning, but one of the things that we rehearse or that we retell on the Feast of Tabernacles on the eighth day, because it says the eighth day is a holy rehearsal. What is one thing that we are retelling? On the eighth day it says, His foreskin would be circumcised. So the circumcision of Messiah happened on the eighth day of Tabernacles. Does that, you think tying into the verse where it says, and I'll, I'll take away your stony heart, put in a... Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. Because what is, what is circumcision a, a picture of? You're in covenant with the Lord. Absolutely. Yeah. And what is it that the Lord prefers that we have? He said, I, you know, circumcise your heart. Circumcise your heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. So more about the circumcision of Jesus. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, remember earlier that we read that when the shepherds heard or saw all the things that they had been told about, what did they go and do? They went and told everybody, everywhere. They made it widely known. At this point, had Herod the king heard about it? No. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So if, this, if news of this birth had made it to Herod, would he have known that he was going to be born in Bethlehem? Absolutely. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the, le least among, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So where are the wise men going? Are they going to Nazareth? Where are they going? They're going to Bethlehem. Because verse 8 it says, he, talking about Herod, sent them to Bethlehem. 
Where did Mary and Joseph live? Nazareth. They didn't live in Bethlehem. So he said, go to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with what? Exceedingly great joy. What is this another symbol or another sign for? Tabernacles. Rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Now, if they were only sojourning to Bethlehem for a short period of time, does that mean that they said, oh, we're going to buy us a house now? So it says, when they came into the house. In Hebrew, a house can be a, a dwelling, it can be the temple, or it can also be a synagogue. Was, there, was the temple in Bethlehem? No. But there would have been a synagogue in Bethlehem. Why is that important? Where did circumcisions happen? At the synagogue. So when the wise men came into the house, talking about into the synagogue, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. So this would have been on the eighth day. That's why the news hadn't traveled quite to Herod's ears yet, because it was just a few days after that. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, presenting the gifts at the circumcision. Gold representing deity, frankincense, and myrrh representing burial spices. So again, the scripture being fulfilled from Leviticus chapter 12 Verse 3, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. All right, let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. All right, get ready to do some math. All right, Luke chapter 4. It says, then Yeshua being filled, starting in verse 1, it says, then Yeshua being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. All right, so we've discussed this before. If Yeshua was baptized on the first day of Teshuva or the first day of Elul, 40 days later puts us at what day? Puts us at Yom Kippur. Puts us at the Day of Atonement. And in those days he ate nothing and was af- and afterward when he had, they had ended, he was hungry. What else is significant about this time? What is Yeshua, what age is Yeshua about to turn? 30. When do priests enter their priesthood? At the age of 30. Okay, so let's do a little deductive math reasoning here. So most scholars believe that Yeshua's ministry lasted three and a half years. All right? 
So if Yeshua died at Passover, which we know he did, subtract three and a half years, where does it put us back to? This time right here that we're reading about now. So if you subtract three and a half years from when he was crucified at Passover, it puts us back at the time of tabernacles. Subtract 30 years from that, when was he born? Around the time of tabernacles. I believe on the first day of tabernacles. All right. So now we're going to look at some more connections with Yeshua and the Feast of Sukkot. Turn to John chapter 12. And in this part, we're also going to see another connection to the eighth day. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. It says, The next day a great multitude had come to the feast. What feast? Passover. When they had heard that Yeshua was coming, took out branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him. Make note of the branches of palm trees. And cried out, Hosanna, Hoshiana, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So, the palm branches. Go to Leviticus 23.40. Leviticus 23.40. Leviticus 23.40. Hey, what do you know? We're talking about tabernacles. Leviticus 23, verse 40. It says, You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. So what's one of the things that are waved at tabernacles or that are are used? It's palm trees. All right. So when we look back to the entry of Messiah into Jerusalem. Yes, it was not at the time of tabernacles. It was at the time of Passover. But what were they waving before the Lord? Palm branches. It says they were waving the branches of palm trees and crying out something. What were they crying out? Hoshiana. What does Hoshiana mean? Save us, please, or save, please. It's a plea for salvation. The seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles has a name very similar. Go to John chapter 7. So we're going to see a a little connection here to tabernacles. So they were crying out, waving palm branches, save us please, save us. So what were they recognizing Messiah as? The Messiah. They were recognizing Yeshua as the Messiah, as salvation. 
John 7, 37. It says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood, out, stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. All right. In verse 37, when it says the great day of the feast, that day has a special name. It's called Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. So you hear the connection between when the people were crying out, waving the palm branches, Hoshiana, save us please, or save please. Then Yeshua stands up on the last day of tabernacles and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So what is he saying? He's saying, I am that salvation. I am the great salvation. If anyone believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah on a day called Hoshana Rabbah, or the great salvation. And what was happening during this time, there was a ceremony called Simchat Beit Hashoivah which is where the priest would pour water, pour out water on the altar and the people would wave, guess what? Palm branches and pray for the life-giving rain. And another thing they were praying was from Psalm 118. I'll just read it to you. Psalm 118, 25 through 26. So they would have been waving palm... So during the Simchat Beit HaShoevah ceremony, they'd have been waving palm branches and they would have also been crying out Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26, which says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. What were they crying when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem? Save us now. Hoshiana, save us please. Oh Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And then what else did they pray? They said Hoshiana, but they were also praying what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. <clears throat> so when the people were praying and waving palm branches and singing out Hoshiana, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see how the, there was a connection there to tabernacles? Because they viewed, they knew, here's the Messiah. Here's the one who's going to bring in what? The kingdom. And what is, tabernac what is tabernacles a teaching of? The establishment of the kingdom. Interesting that it happened at Passover. But... Notice they were waving palm branches and singing out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and save us, please. Daniel, the, Ma the Temple Institute showed a, a thing of tabernacles on their website and it said that the priests waved these palm branches and they went around the altar seven times. And I wonder if they just sang that. As they yeah, them. that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So the Temple Institute said that they, they would wave the palm branches and go around the altar seven, seven times. times. And on the seventh day, that's when the kingdom is established. All kinds of signs and pictures there. All right. Staying in John, 
Go to chapter 8. All right, so Hoshana Rabbah, that's the seventh day of tabernacles, the great salvation. The eighth day is mentioned in chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, it says, But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, which is the next day, what day comes after the seventh day? The eighth day. Now early in the morning, He came again into the temple, and all the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to Him a woman called in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman was called in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, such should be stoned. But what do you say? <clears throat> and they said this testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Yeshua stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. What was he writing in the sand? He was writing their names. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Let me show you that scripture in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 13. Keep a finger in John. Jeremiah 17, 13. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because, here's why, they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. What did he just the day before call himself? The fountain of living waters. So he said, if you... Depart, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. So he's literally writing their names. And those who know the scriptures look at that and go, uh-oh. Then verse 9, back in John chapter 8, verse 9. says, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So the older ones that are supposed to be more wise... When they saw what he was writing, do you think they thought of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13? And Yeshua was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Yeshua had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Yeshua said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, don't do it again. How did he have the ability to forgive that woman's sins? Only God can forgive sins. Exactly. Then look at verse 12. Again, this is the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, Then Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, 
but have the light of life. Now, at the Feast of Tabernacles, in those days, during the days of the temple, I want to read you something from the Mishnah. Again, these are Jewish writings. The, the atmosphere at the, during the Feast of Tabernacles was pretty intense. Um, during the time, there, you know, the emphasis on great joy, the priest would, many of the priests would juggle fire, would do acrobatics. I mean, they would do stuff that just seems a little uncharacteristic. But there were also these large golden candlesticks that were standing in the midst of the temple compound. And let me read to you about those. According to the Mishnah, it says, there were golden candlesticks there with four golden bowls on the top of them. The candlesticks were 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. So each candlestick was 75 feet tall. Four ladders led up to each candlestick and four youths from the priestly stock, yeah, put a young man up there. Four youths from the priestly stock went up holding in their hands jars of oil of 24 logs capacity. That's a lot. Which they poured into the bowls. They made wicks out of the worn out garments of the priest and with them they set the candlesticks alight. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Beit HaShoivah. So in other words, when those candles were lit, how much of Jerusalem did it light up? Just a little bit? The whole city. It said it lit up the whole city. And here's another quote from a website called wordofmessiah.org. It says, this celebration, talking about the celebration of Sukkot, would continue for the seven full seven days. Then the lights, talking about those candlesticks, were extinguished on the eighth day. So that means the lights were lit for seven days, full days, and then extinguished on the eighth day. Now when, in John chapter 8, when did Messiah make that claim that He was the light of the world? On the eighth day. So when those lights were extinguished, He was making that proclamation that I am the light of the world. These lights over here can only light Jerusalem. I can light the whole world. So these lights here are pointing you to me. So Messiah is not just the light of Jerusalem. He is the light of the entire world. Go to Revelation 22. The eighth day of tabernacles references not only what we just read about his circumcision, but also his establishment of the kingdom and into eternity future. So after the millennial kingdom, do things just stop after the seventh day? No, that's when we enter the, the new heavens and the new earth. So can, eternity future. Who will still be the light? Yeshua. Because look at this. Revelation 22.5. It says, There will be no night there. They do not need lamp, nor light of the sun. That doesn't mean they won't be there. They will be there, but they, it says they have no need for them. 
for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. So when he makes the proclamation, I am the light of the world, what is Revelation 22 saying about the Lord God? It says the Lord God gives them light. It's pointing us to the new heavens and the new earth. Because it says who will give them, who will be the light in the new heavens and the new earth? It says Messiah, the Lord God gives them light. So that's pointing us to that eighth day. The new heavens, the new earth. Revelation 21. So just flip back a page. So we're still looking at some more connections with Yeshua and Sukkot. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So what day would this be? The eighth day. The eighth day. The seventh is the millennial kingdom. And when I'm talking about day, I'm talking about those thousand year periods. So this is eternity future. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea, talking about no more Gentiles. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, what's behold mean? Pay attention. This is real important. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. So in the millennial, not in the millennial, in the new heavens and the new earth, on the eighth day, it says the tabernacle of God is where? With men. And it says He will dwell with them. Will there be anything separating us from God at that point? Absolutely not. And it says God Himself will be with them and be their God. The word tabernacle there in verse 3 is the Greek word skeneo. S-K-E-N-O-O, skeneo. That's Greek word 4637. Turn back to John chapter 1. And you'll see that same word used. John chapter 1, verse 14. So in, in Revelation 21, it's translated as the word tabernacle. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word used in Revelation 21. So literally it says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So when He was born at the Feast of Tabernacles, what was he, His birth essentially teaching us about? The coming of the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom into eternity future when God Himself 
would tabernacle with us, with His people. Back in Revelation 21, the very last sentence, very last part says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And it says, God Himself will be with them and be their God. God with them. Does that sound familiar? Emmanuel, God who is with us. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. <clears throat> Go to Isaiah 7. In Revelation 21, in Revelation 21, the very last part of verse 3 says, God Himself will be with them and be their God. What is that an ultimate fulfilling of? And it's an ultimate fulfilling of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, the word virgin is Alma, a virtuous young woman, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Emmanuel in Hebrew is Emmanuel, which means what? The Lord God who is with us. So when is this ultimately fulfilled? At, in the eighth day. When God establishes the new heavens and the new earth and it says God will be with His people. He will be with us. How do we know this applies to Messiah? Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Actually, start at verse 22. We'll get a running start. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So how do we know it applies to Messiah? It tells us right here it applies to Messiah. So all of this was done that would, so it would be fulfilled. And this scripture was fulfilled then. And then the ultimate fulfillment happens in the kingdom. And into eternity future. So God will literally be with us. He will tabernacle with us 
in the new heavens and the new earth on that eighth day. So what does the eighth day teach us? It teaches us of the new heavens and the new earth. All right, I want to end with... this and this is from non-messianic Jewish liturgy from something called the fallen sukkah of David so this is from a website called jewishmiami.org and it's about Sukkot the celebration of reconciliation so this is just a quote from their website it says in Jewish liturgy this is a quote from them in Jewish liturgy The temple is often referred to as a sukkah of peace. Did you catch that? A sukkah of peace. And in the grace grace after meals, a request is included to reestablish the fallen sukkah of David, an allusion to the temple in Jerusalem. This is our act of building a... Thus, our act of building a sukkah would reenact the building of the tabernacle following Yom Kippur. So they're looking to the tabernacle being built after Yom Kippur. And this is non-Messianic Jewish liturgy, which I find very interesting. All right, so in conclusion, I want to read you another quote, and it's from that same website I quoted you earlier, messianicspokane.com, concerning the coming of Messiah. It says, quote, This Sukkot is the time when we can recognize the birth of our Messiah, Yeshua, instead of observing the man-made date of December 25th. Why would we want to rejoice in a lie? As followers of Messiah, shouldn't we rejoice in the truth? Amen. Amen.